Um, but yeah, good morning. Welcome to Madison Church. I'm really glad you are here today, whether it's your first time or a hundredth time. Um, my prayer for you today is that today is meaningful and engaging and that you have, you walk away with something and you're like, man, God really spoke to me in this way. And as Marie mentioned, my name is Stephen. I pastor here. And for the past few weeks, we have been in this series going through Jude's letter. Uh, and not a lot of us have read Jude's letter, although when we found out how short it was, we're like, man, why didn't I read this one sooner? Because I could have really just easily checked that off the list. Um, And Jude had made it pretty clear early on that he wanted to write this encouraging letter, maybe something that was uplifting and and that would make him feel great. But instead, the situation at the time made him write more of a challenging letter, more of like, hey, this is a warning and I need you to heed this warning. And he pleads with readers, both his ancient readers thousands of years ago and us today, the modern readers to stick to the truth that they know because the decisions that we make will lead to heaven or hell. And not just in the next life. So often when we think of heaven and hell, we think of the next life. And while that's true, the decisions that we make now can make this life heaven or hell. The decisions that we make every single day have real life implications, not just for us, but for the people around us. And and so the passion that led me to starting a church with seeing all of these churches and church leaders, the original thing that got me fired up and and said, I need to plant a church, was that all of these churches and church leaders uh, were letting a whole generation, particularly mine, a whole generation, just walk right out the front door or not even come into the church, and that they seemed to be a little too okay with it. Um, And the reason was, what I believed, was that they got really Uh, fell in love with their models and their methods, the way that they did church. They really loved the way that they did church, and they weren't willing to change it for anybody. So if you were a young person, you needed to change to go to church so that you might find Jesus. And I thought, well, what if we kind of maybe just said, like, Jesus came first, and then we started working on some other things. And it's not the pick on these people at all. I don't want to pick on all these churches or make it sound like I'm taking a shot at other pastors. At one point, the reason that they're doing the things they're doing is because at one point it was effective at reaching people. At one point it did reach people and help people find God and experience new life in God. I mean, there's a reason that they still do it week after week, decade after decade. It's not just because it's the way that they like doing churches, because at one point they saw good things happen. But then what happened was is that they elevated personal preference over God's mission. And I want to say that again, because we all do it, so we're all guilty, but we do this. We elevate personal preference over God's mission. And this is where you have like famous carpet wars. What color is the floor? What kind of music do they play? Well, they don't play the music that I like to listen to. Well, they don't teach the way that I want to be teach. Well, the kids program isn't like Chuck E. Cheese for Jesus, you know? It's, and, and so we kind of go through this checklist of like personal preference, personal preference, personal preference. And then at the end of the day, if it actually helps change lives, it's like a bonus. When in reality, changing lives should be the priority. And if it's Chuck E. Cheese with Jesus, that should be the bonus. And so we're looking for missional effectiveness. And so we started a church and we said, hey, here's what we're going to do. We're going to sacrifice personal preference for God's mission. So we're going to be uncomfortable sometimes, but as long as we're effective in reaching people far from God and helping them find a life-giving relationship with God, that we were going to all be willing to make some sacrifices so that that could happen. And I say all that because I thought last week or even this week, it would be great if I could go through the last four years and share stories of people who have really tried to screw up our church. 
you guys like nervously laugh. Ha ha ha. I hope he doesn't talk about me. Uh, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. Because the fact is, is that all of us, if you're in this church and if you've ever contributed to this church in a meaningful way, it probably also means that you've made some mistakes. Why? Because we're all imperfect people, which means we're an imperfect community and we're all going to screw up. So if you've ever been involved in a church, I hate to break it to you, but you've, you've harmed it some way or another. And that's okay. Because we want to make sure that when we do harm it, it's a mistake, it's an accident, it happens every once in a while just because you're imperfect. And not because it's like habitually that's just who you are, is that you're a problem. And that's what Jude is kind of addressing as he's saying, hey, these false teachers, it's not just that they accidentally became immoral. It's not just accidentally that they're faithless people. It's That's their identity. That's who they are. They sit in your congregation, they sing your songs, but man, they are faithless. That is their identity. And that's none of us want to be like that, but at times we have been like that. At times we've been like Israel and we lack faith. And we look back at what God's done instead of look forward to what God's doing, right? We've all done that. We've all done that. We're going to be like fallen angels. We're going to be prideful. And we thought that we're better than some people. We've all thought that we're better than some people. Sometimes we've talked ourselves out, well, God doesn't really mean that. He doesn't, well, that certainly doesn't apply to me, but it applies to them. Um, and sometimes we're going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. We're going to have immoral thoughts and actions. And to put it simply, sometimes we're going to do some stupid stuff. That's what stupid stuff is that we're all going to do that, right? We're not perfect people, but that's what makes Jude's letter, even though it's so short, so relevant for every single person here or if you're watching or listening online, is that we've all screwed up. We, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be a part of the church. It shouldn't be like, well, there's going to be people who are going to make my life difficult, so I'm not going to be a part of the church. And we don't want you to keep going through church life saying, well, I'm difficult and, and I don't want to be difficult. I don't believe that any of you would say, I want to be a difficult person. But yet that sometimes happens. And so Jude pleads with us that he says, hey, please make this infrequent. Don't let it become a habit. If you're going to screw up, that's okay. We all need grace and forgiveness and love. Don't let it become part of your identity. And so if you want, you can go to Jude 11. That's where we're at in the series. And all of this ties together. And I would encourage you to use the blue Bibles if you want. You can make notes and highlights. Yes, I'm telling you, you can write in the Bibles. It's okay. As a matter of fact, if you want to take those blue Bibles, you are absolutely free to take those. We believe that reading the Bible every single day is critical to growing spiritually, which is one of the ways that we connect with God. And we exist at this church to connect with God. So we exist at this church to grow spiritually. So we exist at this church to read the Bible daily. See how it all just kind of flows together? It's not like Burger King, have it your way. Everything has a meaning and a purpose. And so go ahead um, and go to Jude 11. And uh, Jude isn't yet finished laying into these false teachers. Last week, he laid out like this big kind of attack on them. I called them faithless and immoral and prideful. And it's like, in case you didn't get it, he's going to do it one more time. He's going to say, well, just in case you're not hearing the very blatant words coming out of my mouth, I want to make sure that you get this. He is so concerned with you and me and the believer's relationship with God and each other that he goes into one more attack on them. So it's out of this concern, his love for you and me and these people he's writing he says, one more thing. And so just like last week, he's going to begin with three examples that we find in the Old Testament. And then he's going to characterize them in very descriptive but negative ways. And so let's start with Jude 11. He says, what sorrow awaits them? For they follow. They follow in the footsteps of Cain, who killed his brother. Like Balaam, they deceive people for money. And like Korah, they perish 
in their rebellion. And so these are, again, three more Old Testament examples. You might not recognize all of the names. That's okay. We're going to talk about it in a second. But the big difference between this week and last week, this week's verse with last week's verses, is last week he talked about Israel and Sodom and Gomorrah and fallen angels. He's talking about groups. He's talking about countries, nations, people. Today he's talking about individuals. He says Balaam and Korah and Cain. So he's talking about individuals. So understand that that transition that's happening is he's going from groups to individual people. But now the other thing to understand is last week he talked about how these groups led themselves into destruction. He said they did this, they did that, and it led them to destruction. And today he's actually going to transition to talk about how we lead other people to destruction. So it's not just that, hey, if I'm immoral or if I'm prideful or if I'm this or I'm that, I'm going to just lead myself down a bad path. Jude says, no, you're also going to take other people with you, other people who who don't want to go with you necessarily, you're going to take them with you. And so uh, Jude's first example is Cain, who murdered his brother out of envy. You don't have to grow up in church to recognize the names Cain and Abel, but I'll go into that just a little bit so we're all on the same page. But Cain was uh, born to Adam and Eve, the first people that we hear about in the Bible, and he has a little brother, Abel, and they grow up, and Cain becomes uh, kind of a gardener or farmer, and he brings his offering to God like you're supposed to, and Abel becomes a shepherd, and he brings an offering to God. But what we read in the story in Genesis 4 is that uh, God doesn't accept Cain's offering, but he accepts Abel's offering. And it's not like God was like, well, I like Abel, so I'm going to accept his offering, and I don't like Cain. God actually goes to Cain and says, hey, you're not offering your best, and sin is creeping at the door. God goes to Cain and warns him. God doesn't want to see Cain fall or screw up or not live a maximum life. God loves Cain. And he goes to Cain and says, hey, you can do better. Now, what's interesting is oftentimes, at least for me, I always thought like, Abel was bringing his best, and Cain was bringing his worst. But that's not actually in the text at all. We don't know what Cain was bringing. Cain could have been bringing his second best, and that's the problem. And so it could have just been because Cain wasn't paying attention. It could have been because Cain didn't have enough intentionality. We don't know, but what we do know is that it was sin in Cain's heart that God was trying to confront and said, hey, you're not bringing God your best. And God says, you got to change. Well, Cain doesn't. Cain gets mad, even though God tried to help him. Cain takes his little brother out into a field, kills his little brother Abel, uh, which absolutely tears God up. It, like, it breaks his heart. It upsets him. He asks Cain, where's your brother? Uh, God knows Cain's killed his brother. Uh, Cain and God have a little verbal exchange, a little heated thing. And even though God curses Cain and kicks him out of the community, God offers protection for Cain. And so that kind of shows this kind of like God is, is upset with Cain, but he's not going to let Cain just go out and be killed or, or tortured. He protects Cain, but says, hey, what you've done is bad and you can't be a part of this community anymore. Um, but what does Cain have to do with Jude's letter to the false teachers and to us? Cain stands for people who are cynical and materialistic who defy God and despise other people. That's what Cain shows in all of us. It shows a lack of faith and love. Ultimately, is what Cain lacked was faith to offer God his best. Love for his brother is why he did this. And that's true of the false teachers that Jude was writing to, that they lacked faith and love. And it's true to us in this church. 
We don't always bring God our best, right? Even if it's not intentional, we don't always bring God our best. We kind of just give him the rest. Whatever's left over, it could be with our money, our time, our energy. Well, it was a really busy week, so I'm not going to do this. Well, we had an unexpected bill, so I'm not going to do this. Well, it's a really nice day outside. Uh, We'll just go to the lake instead of going to church. And I'm not trying to shame anybody if you're watching online because you're on vacation this week. But again, we're talking the difference between these things being once in a while and these things being like habitually every single week you're at the lake you know not focusing on other things and then we get mad when god blesses other people we get on facebook and then we see them post pictures of their new car or their bigger house and then we feel envious why oh man why doesn't god bless me like that and no we don't take them out into a field and kill them i mean most of you wouldn't do that there are laws that protect these certain things and if for that alone you won't do it but don't we murder people with our thoughts and our words and even, yes, our passive-aggressive actions toward them. And in that way, Cain's spirit is alive in us. We are just like Cain. And I say we because, again, we've all been guilty of this one time or another. But for some of us, we need to heed to Jude's warning here because it's like, that's me all the time. I never give God the best because I'm too tired to give him the best. I'm always angry with God blessing other people. I'm always angry with God. And while we don't take people out to the field and kill them, we're like, man, I am passive aggressive and I do treat people poorly. And, and that's what Jude is saying. You're going to lead other people away. This isn't just bad for you. Remember today's focus. Last week's focus was how this is bad for you. This week's focus is how this is bad for the person sitting next to you. So whether you wanted to right now look to the person to your right or to your left, if this person describes you, there's a chance that you could damage their relationship with God. There's a chance you could damage their relationship with the church if you don't deal with this. So we're going to come back to this. So there's Cain. He also mentions Balaam. Balaam is the second character in Jude's list. Uh, you might not know a lot about Balaam. That's okay. What you got to know about him is that this guy could be bought for anything. Okay, he was so greedy. And that's the bottom line is that God had good intentions for him. God has purposes for him. Uh, but Balaam, man, if you showed him a little cash, he'd say whatever you want him to say. And that's the problem. And that's the problem with Jude's teachers is that whatever you'll pay them to do, they'll say, they'll do. And Balaam reveals in all of us greed and consumerism and this desire for want more and more and more certainly true of us now we say well we plan on giving as soon as we pay off this debt as soon as i get this new job as soon as i get this promotion as soon as i do this or say we say incorrectly but nonetheless we say even though it's wrong we say well tithing is legalistic and god doesn't want me bound by legalism. You are right. God doesn't want you bound by legalism, and you're wrong if you think tithing is legalistic. We covered that in a series, though, before this one, so we're not going to move on from that. And then we think, though, and, and this, again, describes more of us, we think that by tithing alone that we're generous. Well, I tithe, so I'm generous. Mm. Wrong. Not necessarily. Jesus actually calls that out in the New Testament. He calls people out who do tithe. He goes, they tithe to the penny, and they are not generous. So you can absolutely fundamentally tithe and not be generous. And so in continuing today's warning, greed isn't just something that will negatively impact you. Greed isn't something that will negatively impact your family. Greed will negatively impact the people sitting around you, in front of you, and behind you. And here's the why, okay? People in our Madison Church community will suffer when we're stingy. I want to say that again. People in this community will suffer when we 
are stingy. Our lack of generosity will lead people away from faith either directly or indirectly. Let me tell you, if you have to tell people you're generous, you're not. Okay? <laughs> Let me just if you have to tell people, no, I'm generous, I really am. Like, no, like that you're offering a defense, okay? <laughs> if you have to tell people you're not. And then these people then are going to be turned off by your hypocrisy because you serve a God. As a Christian, maybe you didn't realize this, you serve a God who loves you so much, who loves people so much that he did what? What was the ultimate expression of his love? He gave. God loves you so much that he gave. And then now there's you and you're a follower of Jesus and you love little and you give even less. And people see that hypocrisy and they say, well, I know that the God that they serve is like that, but they're nothing like that. Why would I ever be a part of your church or your faith community where I can be around not just one of you, not just 10 of you, but 100 people who are just like you who are trying to convince me that you're generous when you're not? Okay? It also impacts people indirectly. What do I mean by that? There are people in this neighborhood all around us who have never, ever heard of Madison Church Because they haven't heard of us. Because we haven't sent them a postcard. Because we haven't put a door hanger on their door. Why? Because we don't have the money to do that all the time. We try to do it, but we don't always have the money to do that. There are people who need ministering to that we just say, we can't minister to you because we just don't have the money to do it. And so in that way, when we withhold and we're greedy or we're not generous, it affects people, yes, directly. They see the hypocrisy in your life, but indirectly. That there are people all around us who are just not hearing about Madison Church or the ministries that we offer because we can't get the word out to them. Like Balaam, our love for money hurts the church. Like Cain, our lack of love hurts the church. And then finally, there's Korah. Korah is notorious for his rebellion against Moses and Aaron, who are the divinely appointed leaders of Israel. You're like, I've never even heard of Korah. Let me break it down for you, the real quick version. Uh, Korah is this guy in the Old Testament. He has influence. He's in Israel. They're in the wilderness. And we know that the Israelites are really frustrated with where they're at. We talked about that last week, where they're looking back at Egypt and all the miracles God did to get them out. And then now they're frustrated that they're not in the promised land. So Korah says, you know what? The problem's not God. The problem is our leader. The problem is Moses and Aaron. God chose us. God got us out of Egypt. So what does Korah do? Korah goes off and Korah, Korah goes off and finds a couple hundred other people, people with influence, followers, and he says, hey, Moses and Aaron, we need to get them out. They're obviously doing something wrong. God wants us to go to the promised land. And so then they confront Moses after they've already kind of got a lynch mob going. And they confront Moses and Aaron. And they say, hey, we're not happy with you. God's obviously not happy with you. So you are out. Well, they have this verbal exchange. Moses is like, no, God definitely called us to do this. We know that. How many miracles have we seen? God is with us. We're just in this tough time right now. And they keep arguing. And then eventually what happens, long story short, the ground opens up and eats Korah and all of his followers, kills them, and then the ground shuts again. Everyone around is deeply disturbed by this, including Moses. Moses cries. Uh, He's like, (laughs) he's very disturbed by what he just saw. And um, what what can we learn about Korah? I don't think the ground is going to open up and eat you. Okay, that's the first thing. But there's a right way to guard the unity of a community. There's a right way to question leadership, and there's a wrong way. The wrong way was what Cora did, which was he went behind the leaders' backs, and he got a bunch of other people, and then he confronts Moses 
with 250 other people, he's already rallied against Moses. And we know biblically that's not how you keep unity. We know biblically that's not even how you handle conflict resolution. If there is a problem, there's a right way. Now what I'm saying, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying you always have to agree with me. Okay, if you follow me on Facebook, I promise you, I post something you don't like to see at least once a week, okay? Now, that doesn't mean that the ground is going to open up to you at your house or in your apartment and eat you because you disagree with me. That's not at all what I'm saying. Well, what I am saying is if you're like, hey, you know what? Maybe Stephen shouldn't be the lead pastor of the church. Maybe, you know, Dan, maybe he shouldn't be a trustee. Mike, you know what? Maybe he shouldn't be an elder. And then you go and you talk to everybody else and you get them all fired up. And then you come to us and say, hey, you're out. That will deeply hurt God and make him upset. It'll make me upset too, just so you know. Uh, so I'm not saying that I'm going to let that go. But that's the thing is that we handle conflict the wrong way. It causes division in our church, and it will absolutely hurt people. It'll hurt people that we didn't intend to hurt. We did have a little bit of this. I'm not, we don't, names and, and timelines aren't important, but we did have a little bit of this in our church. And, and a lot of us did feel the ripple effect, even if it didn't directly hurt you or feel, you know, come to you, we were hurt by division and not having unity and not handling conflict the right way. And that ripple effect ended up hurting people that we were like, how, how were they even involved? How did they even know? Like, we thought that we kept that really well maintained and now this person over here is really hurt. Well, now this person over here doesn't go to church. Well, that person was never a believer and we were ministering to them and we thought they were going to find God, but now they're not at church at all. And then we find out that it's like, well, where did this problem birth from? Well, it birthed from Christians, believers, you and me, well-intended people. I'm not bashing anyone right now. So if you know who I'm talking about or you think you know who I'm talking about, that's not it. I'm not bashing anyone. I'm saying well-intended people who were hurt, who didn't handle conflict the right way, who didn't guard the unity the right way, they had consequences to those actions that affected other people in the church. And so that is what he's warning us about handle conflict correctly. So like Cain, they were devoid of love. They didn't have faith. Like Balaam, they were prepared to do whatever they needed to do to get more money, more, more, more. And like Korah, they were careless about what God wanted and insubordinate to the church leaders. And so now he goes on to this next kind of portion, verse 12. When these people eat with you at your fellowship meals, commemorating the Lord's love, they are like dangerous reefs that can shipwreck you. They are like shameless shepherds who only care for themselves. They are like clouds blowing over the land without giving any rain. They are like trees in autumn that are doubly dead, for they bear no fruit and have been pulled up by their roots. They are like wild waves of the sea, churning up the foam of their shameful deeds. And they are like wandering stars, doomed forever to the blackest darkness. No, I can cover this passage. There's a lot going on, but I can cover it really quick. One, the love feast that they're talking about, that was their gathering. It was the equivalent of our church services. Really, it was. What were they doing at these love feasts? They were getting together with other believers to study the Bible, pray, and have communion. Boy, that sounds an awful lot like what we started to do at 1030 this morning. We got together, we prayed, we're studying the Bible. In just a moment, we're going to have communion. What am I saying? What is Jude saying? He's saying these false teachers aren't somewhere else doing something else, saying something else. He's saying, yes, they are right there in your congregation when you're having meetings, when you're studying the Bible, when you're taking communion, when you are praying, the false teachers are there. Okay, so don't think that they're like the boogeyman somewhere out there. They're absolutely, he says, they're in there with you. Now, I love the descriptors here that are positive because if you think about it, 
They are like clouds blowing over the land. They are like trees in autumn. They are like wild waves. What do we do with this? We take pictures of these things and we hang them all over our houses. Some of you have an office and you have like a picture of those wild waves and have some inspirational quote underneath it. But perseverance. And then a little sentence, right? And we're like inspired by these things. And Jude says, yeah, they look good. But he always adds something. They are like clouds blowing over, but they don't give any rain. They're like trees in autumn, double dead. They're like waves of the sea, churning up foam from their shameful deeds. And what is he saying? He says, these false teachers, they look good. They look like they belong in your church. Everything on the outside is perfect. And inside they're rotting. They're dead. Look at the fruit of their lives. Nothing good is coming out. He says, but they're picture perfect. You would absolutely think that these guys have it all together. And then I think, man, doesn't that describe so many of our churches? Doesn't that describe us sometimes? Man, I don't feel good. Man, I don't, I've got mono. I don't feel like being here today. There's this, there's that going on. But you know what? We're going to put on some pants. We're going to put on a shirt. And I'm going to act like everything's okay every single week. And I'm going to go week to week and month to month. And eventually year to year it becomes who I am, that I'm just a big fraud. But I look good on the outside. You're going to be jealous of my Instagram post because it looks like my family is always happy and it looks like God's always blessing us. But deep down, I'm double dead. I'm rotting. My shameful deeds are coming outside. And I'm not just saying that's true of the church across the street or other pastors. I'm saying that it will absolutely be true of this church too if we don't heed Jude's warning. If we don't take it seriously, we'll be so concerned with what's going on on the outside. Do I look the part? Do I sound the part that inside we're rotting and dead? And that's what he warns. He says, hey, a key thing about false teachers is they look good. They look real good. They look so good, you're going to want to take a picture of them, put them on your office wall. That's how good they look. He goes, but deep down, they're dead and they're in your church. They're as dangerous as sunken rocks, as selfish as perverted shepherds, as useless as rainless clouds, as dead as barren trees, as dirty as the foaming sea, and as certain have a certain of doom as the fallen angels, is how one theologian put it. And I love that imagery of all of these things that we tend to just, oh, those are really nice things. Like, oh, wait, no, they, they're not great. So let's recap a little bit. I want to just, it's a good time. We've covered a lot of ground. Let's just recap where we've been. Jude talks about three characters in the Old Testament. Cain, Balaam, and Korah. And he says that these three describe the false teachers that are amongst the church, both thousands thousands of years ago, but also today. And he says these traits that they have won't just lead you away from God. So if you see these traits in yourself, they don't just lead you. Jude's warning is that they're going to lead your family, your friends, the people you're sitting next to in church, the people you're going to small group with. They will lead other people away as well. They hate they're greedy, and they're rebellious. And he says, here's the thing. They don't look like how you think they're going to look. They look great, and they look great doing it, and they sit amongst you at your church services. And so we say, so what? What do we do with that? Okay, you've scared us out of our pants. <laughs> like, we don't want to be Cain. We don't want to be Balaam. We don't want to be Korah. Well, so what? Well, here's the thing. Let's talk about all three of them. If you want to avoid being like Cain, you have to develop love for other people people who are like you, people who are different from you, people who annoy you, people who are hard to love. You have to develop a love for them. That doesn't mean you're always going to feel good about them. It doesn't mean you're going to like hanging out with them. It doesn't even mean they're going to be one of your top friends or your first phone call when you get that promotion or that new whatever. But it means that you're developing love toward them. And we do that through the practice of hospitality 
Hospitality is when you invite someone over, not just for dinner, but you invite them into your life. You invite them into your messy house that smells like, you know, cats and dogs or whatever. And you're like, hey, but this is my life. This is who we are. And we have to eat anyway. So why not have somebody else eat with you? And you're like, well, what if I don't like them? We have to develop love for everybody, okay? If we want to avoid being like Cain, we have to love everybody. So we do that through the practice of hospitality. Look, you're probably going to eat at least 21 times this next week. What if you made it a goal this week that you're saying, hey, one time during breakfast, one time during lunch, and one time during dinner, I'm going to be intentional about that meal and include somebody else, maybe something, somebody I don't know, somebody I kind of know, somebody I don't like because I need to like them better because I don't want this thing, this habit of not liking somebody to become my identity. If we want to avoid being like Balaam, we have to declare war on the greed in our hearts. Okay, We, we live in the U.S., and if there's one sin that identifies us. We can look at other countries and say, oh, they're you know, hungry for war. Oh, the famine. Their, their government doesn't take care of their people. If we were to look at one sin in our country and say, what is the one sin that rules the United States? I would say it's consumerism and greed. Every single one of us experiences it. Every time there's a commercial on TV, somebody is trying to sell you something. You listen to the radio, they're trying to sell you something. Everybody wants your money. So naturally, you're guarded. And you want to defend that. And I understand that. But the way to combat uh, greed is to develop generosity. And that means you can't think, oh, well, if I give, I have less. Which, generally speaking, is true. You go to Target, you spend $100, you have $100 less. Hopefully you've walked away with some stuff that kind of evens it out. You feel good about what you've bought. Sometimes you get home and you're like, man, I hated that. What a waste of money. Can't take it back because I used it. Okay, so sometimes that's going to happen. But that's not the same with generosity. Generosity isn't, well, I have $100 less. It's an investment in the kingdom of God. It's an obedience thing. We give back to God uh, some of our money, and and we trust that he's going to bless us. As a matter of fact, Jesus says in the New Testament, it's better to give than it is to receive. So if we take Jesus at his word, then we believe that, no, not when I give, I actually do have more. We're like, well, how does that make sense? Well, it makes sense in God's economy. So uh, to avoid being like Cain, we got to be hospitable. To avoid being like Balaam, we have to be generous. And to avoid being like Korah, we need to champion unity. And unity doesn't mean sameness. For the love of God, it does not mean we all have to be the same and think the same politically and think the same theologically. That is not true at all. That's why our church has so few positions on anything. If you were to ask me what like, I think or I feel about something, chances are I'm going to say, you know what? Our church doesn't have a position on that. We just like to support people. And that's because I really believe that there's beauty in diversity, even in what we believe about God and the Bible and spirituality. That's okay. Now, there are some things that we're like, hey, we do have to agree on this. And that's what we cover at the membership dinner. We'll say this is what we absolutely agree on. Um, But we need to be unified even in our diversity. And so you have to practice biblical conflict resolution. What does that mean? You have to go to the person who's upsetting you or you think is doing something wrong. You go to them first. You're like, oh, I don't know if it's worth it. You know what? It might not be worth it. You might just be being a little pansy about some things, okay? Like, that's, that's the meanest thing I think I've ever said. But sometimes we're like, oh, man, it's so bad. But you're not actually willing to talk to the person about it. Then maybe it's not that bad. Maybe you're just overreacting a little bit. But you're like, no, you know what? I do need to talk to them. Well, you go to that person and you talk to them. And then they keep doing it. If it is an issue, you talk to someone else. You talk to Mike. You talk to Dan. You talk to me. You're like, hey, 
I talk to them and this, and then you let us speak into that situation. I go to Mike and Dan sometimes too, and I'm like, hey, I need advice. I need wisdom. What do I do in this situation with this person? And they, I mean, they, these guys have so much wisdom and you just take it. You're like, okay, this is what I need to do. And then you go back to that person, you deal with it. And if it doesn't happen, you go back. Hey, Mike, hey, Dan, I did what you said and it didn't work. Then all three of you have a conversation. That's the way to do it. It isn't that you like phone tag, email, Facebook message everyone else in the church and say, doesn't it always bug you when Stephen does this? Doesn't it always bug you when Megan does this? And you rally 20 people and you're like, now we're going to go and confront Stephen. No. In that case, I hope the ground does open up and swallow you. No, I'm just kidding, sort of. But I do want that to happen, but I'll invite you over for dinner so that way I feel better about you, right? That's what we're talking about. It goes full circle here. And so uh, being mature, doing it the way that Jesus explains means go directly to the person that you're um, upset with. So next week, we're going to enter into the next phase of this very deep and wide letter. Um, We're going to spend, you know, we spent a month or so so far talking about Jude. And hopefully you're like, man, there's so much meat to this small letter. Didn't even know it. And that's how a lot of the Bible is, actually. There's a lot going on. Um, But let's recap today one more time. When we hate each other, we're just like Cain who killed his brother Abel. The answer is love. And we express that love through hospitality. When we're greedy, we're just like Balaam. And the answer is generosity. And we practice generosity by giving. And when we're divided, we're just like Korah. And the answer is unity. And we work toward unity through conflict resolution. Now, whether you struggle with one of these, whether you struggle with all of them, whether it's like sometimes in your life, whether it's like all the time in my life, these things won't just lead you away from God. Jude's warning is that they'll lead you away from God and you'll have a bunch of followers going with you. And in that sense, let's take it so seriously that, hey, I'm not just screwing up my life. I might be screwing up somebody else's. And none of us want to be like that. I really believe that none of you want to be like that, but we do. We accidentally become Part of that. Anybody who's been part of a church knows that that's true, right? Let's pray.